Hello, I'm Susan Schroeder. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you today. And it's hard to believe that we're just about halfway through our Second Corinthians study. It's passing so quickly, isn't it? Our time together, uh, we have seen that the church did not really appreciate Paul. They didn't appreciate how he labored for them. And instead they wanted to discredit his ministry. Um, we've seen that Paul has, is having to defend himself when they should have been defending him. And it was Paul who had gone to Corinth to actually bring them the gospel. And it was through Paul's ministry that the church was founded. And we see in chapter 5 that Paul also fulfilled the work of being Christ's ambassador. He was so faithful, wasn't he? And perhaps you're wondering why would he continue to contend for the gospel in his ministry? Well, last week we learned what compelled Paul, and it should compel all of us. All of us who have been reconciled to God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you have accepted God's gift of salvation, you are now his ambassador too. And we closed out chapter 5 with Paul imploring the church to also be reconciled to God. And it's on the heels of this call to reconciliation that Paul begins chapter 6. And in this portion of the letter, Paul is defending his ministry from critics. And he offers proof that his ministry is, in fact, valid. Now, most of us, when trying to prove ourselves, will list our achievements and our successes. Isn't, isn't that what you would put on a resume? But not the Apostle Paul. He will list here in chapter 6 his sufferings. And Paul's sufferings were so severe that uh, probably most of us would not have survived half of what he had to. And Paul says that his suffering proves that his ministry is legitimate. And I just have to take a, a little break here to tell you that, you know, I wasn't originally scheduled to give today's lesson. <laughs> but as usual, God's timing is, is so perfect and providential because he knew I needed to dig into these, uh, this chapter and extract the truths that he had for me. And I just want to say that I'm so thankful that God's word corrects our thinking and, and bends our will, takes it off of our eyes off of ourselves. And, and so let's go ahead and get going. Um, honestly, I could probably spend our entire time camped out in just the first few verses, uh, but I wouldn't want to miss out on all the other nuggets that are in this chapter. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul starts this chapter with a pronoun we, as if to say, Corinthians, we we, you and me, we are on the same team. The we here is all of the workers, all of the workers for God, his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation. Paul was a worker for Jesus. We should be too. And it's important to note that Paul said that they worked for God, his plans, 
His church, His equipping, His leading. It is His work that He asks us to do with Him. Instead of trying to get God to help us with our work, we need to find out what God's work is and do it with Him. How easy, right? How easy is it in our flesh not to pause and seek the Lord on what work He has for us? I once heard Priscilla Shire say, you can't serve Jesus without Jesus. (laughs) Amen? It's so simple but such an important truth. And so here we haven't even finished verse one and there's already this great challenge. As we serve him, are we seeking his direction, his plans? Can we along with Paul say, we then as workers together with him? And while Paul does use the word we, which applied to many in the Corinthian church, he certainly uh, wasn't positive that everybody that who professed to be saved was truly a child of God, especially since there were newcomers and false uh, teachers preaching an altogether different gospel. Paul goes on to make an appeal for them and all who hear this word not to receive God's grace in vain. Paul further says, now is the time. You see, there should be an urgency in our response to God. He has an acceptable time for us to work with his grace. God has a day of salvation that won't last forever. We aren't promised tomorrow. I think many of us know this. We know this. But it's important to know that we have God's grace available to us in this moment. Maybe you've been in church all of your life, or maybe this is all new to you, and you're exploring Christianity. In either case, when and if you fully comprehend the gift of God's grace that he lavished on us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it's now. Now is the time. Now it's the time to turn fully to him, to repent of our sins, confess our faith in him for our salvation. And ladies, if we've already placed our faith in Jesus, it's still our time. This is our time to be about our father's business. We are to be ministers of reconciliation, seeking to do his will, We are established by his grace and serving in that grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10 and 11, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace labored in the Apostle Paul, and that same grace is available to us. I can assure you that I'm not different than you. I love comfort. I love all things comfortable and squishy and cozy. What American doesn't like comfort? But this is not the time for self-focus and the pursuit of a life cushioned in comforts. And it's not the way of Jesus. We've been called to a life of sacrifice and service. Rest when we must, 
because that's absolutely important to do. But then it's time. It's time to get busy for the Lord and to be workers together with him. He is coming and there is so much to do. I want to be a busy ambassador because honestly, my friends, there is just no comfort in knowing that the millions in this world, and especially my loved ones, do not know about Jesus' saving grace. Well, Paul goes on into verse 3, and he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault can be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. You know, one of the greatest obstacles to the progress of the gospel is a bad example of those who profess to be Christians. It was Paul's aim not to do anything that would be a stumbling block for sinners or for saints. And he did not want the ministry to be discredited or blamed in any way because of his life. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 15, we learned that Paul did not take a salary as a minister, minister or a missionary so that he wouldn't be accused of being motivated by money. We know that Paul humbly accepted less prominent roles. Paul was working hard and endured hardship. But it's important to note that there's a distinction that David Guzik points out of our bold ambassador, and that was that Paul was not afraid to offend anyone over the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he would not allow his style of ministry to offend anyone. He was bold in presenting the truth of Jesus Christ. But it's how he went about it that he did not want to be a stumbling block. And so Paul goes on in verses 4 and 5 to remind the Corinthians of the trials that he had endured for them. He says, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. What a job description of Paul's ministry. Who wants to apply? (laughs) Paul starts in verse 4 with great endurance. Why? It was because of the great endurance that he had in the Holy Spirit by his power and his grace to him, that he was able to endure these afflictions, hardships, calamities, and so on. The, word, the Greek word for endurance is hypomene. William Barclay explains its meaning like this. It is not easy to capture the richness or depth of this expression with a single word in English. It does not describe the frame of mind with which can sit down in folded hands and bowed head and let a torrent of troubles sweep over it in passive resignation. It describes the ability to bear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them. This was Paul's endurance. And despite the afflictions of men, Paul had great endurance through God's grace at work in him, and he was able to persevere through these riots, imprisonments, beatings, all things done to him 
that were beyond his control. But Paul also included some things in this list that some of these sacrifices that he made voluntarily for the sake of ministry, such as sleepless nights, hunger, and labors. And Paul isn't boasting here. He's not wanting the Corinthians to feel sorry for him. He mentions these sufferings because he wanted to assure the Corinthians of his love for them, what he was willing to endure voluntarily. But also in doing so, Paul shows us that his behavior here is honorable. It gives credibility to his ministry. This is the way of Jesus, a call to these sufferings. And it's evidence that he is a true minister of God and the authentic gospel message. Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7 to list the resources that he used in ministry so that he could endure. They are, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. These verses reveal that in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, a believer can be sheltered, strengthened, shielded by the fruit of the Spirit. Paul experienced these trials in greater measure than most men. But friends, look in this passage, it tells us, it shows us, he experienced also the blessings probably in greater measure than most men. He experienced the fruits of the Spirit. Paul used weapons of righteousness in both hands. Theologian Adam Clark states that these weapons were, quote, offensive and defensive for both advancing and being attacked. Righteousness is like an armor surrounding Paul. He used the word of God to convey spiritual knowledge in Ephesians 6.10, and he wore the armor of God to protect him from attacks from our enemy, unquote. As Paul concludes his ministry resume in verses 8 through 10, his list will include both what the world thought of him and we also see what God thought of him. He goes on to say, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Oh, this is a sobering picture of suffering. Nobody desires to be punished, sorrowful, poor, having nothing, That's why we hate suffering. It hurts. And when we look at suffering, it's an overwhelmingly bleak picture, isn't it? But then God enters the picture and he takes the worst and he transforms it to the best. He redeems all things. And here Paul tells what God does in the life of a sufferer. Let's look at the verses he says. You're true. 
You have life. You're known. You're joyful. You're rich. Because in Christ Jesus, we can have nothing yet possess everything. And ladies, as I read through that list, did you catch it? Did you catch it? He gives us joy. Joy in the middle of suffering. He restores us in the middle of our mess. If that's you today, he'll do it for you. You and I can experience joy in our suffering. And this is something that only God can do. In 18 different passages in the New Testament, suffering and joy appear together. And in fact, we see that suffering is often the cause for joy. The suffering drives us to the need of our Savior. We cry out to him. We see, that in, we see this in Romans 5, 3 through 5, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One virtue builds upon another as we grow in the likeness of Jesus. Jerry Bridges wrote in the book, Trusting God, we mistakenly look for tokens of God's love and happiness. We instead should look for his faithful and persistent work to conform us to Christ, unquote. And as we wrap up this first half of this chapter, we can see that if we are workers together with God, we will share in his sufferings. To follow him means to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And throughout my study time, the Lord kept bringing to mind one of my favorite poems uh, since my youth. And I wanted to share it with you. It's by Amy Carmichael, and it's called No Scar. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee, sun, is mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By raving beasts that come past me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. Thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Paul's sharing of the ups and downs of ministry provides an important backdrop to the value that he placed on the relationships with those in the Corinthian church. And now here in verse 11, Paul returns to his purpose of this letter in chapter 6 to restore 
those relationships that he can, can, so that he can continue having an effective ministry with them. Let's take a verse, look at verses 11 through 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your hearts also. So if I were to paraphrase these verses, it would be something along these lines. Paul is saying, I've poured out my heart to you. I've pleaded with you with the yearning of a loving father. Paul was like their spiritual father. And now I'm asking you to open your hearts to us. But the Corinthians, they refuse to respond with an open heart. Have you ever noticed how impossible it is to resolve conflict of any kind with somebody who has a hardened heart towards you? The Corinthian Christians' affections were for this world. They eagerly entered into intimate and professional relationships with unbelievers. They were unequally yoked. And at the same time, they wouldn't accept Paul's loving, godly guidance. They were restricted by their own affections. And so Paul boldly calls them out in verses 14 through 18. He goes on to say, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul begins by referencing Deuteronomy 22.10 where it says, do not be unequally yoked. This is an Old Testament, this Old Testament uh, passage prohibited yoking together two different animals. So here in our text, Paul is using this spiritual principle from a literal command. Don't join two things that should not be joined. And now Paul is speaking in a literal sense. And he says a believer should not enter into a marriage, a business relationship, any contractual or covenantal relationship with an unbeliever. Why? As Christ's followers, we will have a different master, a different, different purposes, different goals, different values, different views. This would make any partnership almost impossible to be able to function in unity, not to mention the godless influence upon a life of a believer. We cannot be naive in thinking that we will not be influenced by what we are attached to. You know what I mean. There's probably, there's probably not a mom in here who has not told their kids, you will become like the company that you keep. 
And to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that we never associate with unbelievers. But we are to be in the world, not of it. And certainly, ladies, certainly not bound to it. Again, the the Corinthian Christians thought that the worldly people, they thought like worldly people, not like godly people. And this was largely due to their associations. God commanded his people to come out, to be separate. We do so because in 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us that we are set apart for God. In our final passage, Paul quotes from Jeremiah 31.9, where he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be a my sons and daughters, friends, when we separate from worldly influences, we are going to experience a more intimate relationship with our Father. I want that called onto Him. To have it all anchored in Him. Every work, every relationship to be honoring to Him. And Paul ends chapter 5 with this plea to be reconciled unto Christ. And he concludes in chapter 6 with this call to separation unto God. You see, if we are reconciled with God, if we are His, we must be set apart for the Lord. Charles Hodge states, quote, We can't desire reconciliation and refuse sanctification, unquote. Friends, God will sanctify us through and through as our work as ambassadors. He will sanctify us through our sufferings. God isn't asking us to clean up our hearts. He will be faithful to do that. But he does ask us to obey. Oh, friends, what is he calling us out of so that we can experience the true joy and intimacy with our Father in heaven? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Lord, and it would be my heart's cry that you would make me willing, willing to endure sufferings just as you did Lord to be set apart in all things because I want to be yours and exclusively yours Lord would you help us do this by the power of your Holy Spirit Lord Work in us, move in us, and we thank you for the ways, Lord, that you use your word to do that. Oh, glory to God, we pray. Amen.